One of my favorite things in youth ministry going back um, quite a few years was summer camp. I always loved getting to go to summer camp with our kids. And for the most part, every year of summer camp went perfectly smooth, except for 2011. Um, That is the year the wheels fell off summer camp. And everything, like Murphy's Law has nothing on 2011 summer camp for West Hill. It it was a disaster from the start. Um, We found out right before we left that we were having some difficulties with the pregnancy. Um, My wife was pregnant, and she was going to camp with us, and we decided that we were going to go anyway. Um, We left Cleburne, Texas on Sunday morning, and about 20 minutes down the road, I get a phone call. And mind you, this is the end of July in Texas, and we have a van without AC. And so by the time we were an hour away in Dallas, we were stopped trying to find a Caps rental van place on a Sunday morning at 9 a.m. who would rent us a van, which does not work. About an hour after that, we got a call that a kid in our youth group had run away from home and he was suicidal. And so we spent time trying to track him down and figure out what was going on. We stopped for lunch um, about 150 miles earlier than we intended and a few hours later. And by the time we finally got to... um, our place for dinner that night, which was supposed to be Jackson, or somewhere in Alabama. We were actually only in Jackson, Tennessee, and, or Mississippi, that, that place, Jackson, Mississippi. Um, and so we pull up on Google Maps to try to find a CC's, because obviously CC's is the greatest place in the world if you're a youth minister with 50 plus kids to feed really quickly and really cheaply. And so we pull up on Apple Maps, CC's, and we drive there right to arrive at the door, and um, there's no CC's. It's moved. Um, And so we finally tried to find one. Oh, and before that, we got caught in a torrential downpour. Like, drive 10 miles an hour down the freeway, torrential downpour. Um, And if I were to sit here and just tell you all of the things we encountered that trip, like, you would just, like, laugh. I mean, Cammie and I talk about now, we just laugh. Because there is no possible thing that could have gone wrong that did not. It was horrible. And so we finally get to CC's and we're eating. Um, and I have this kid who's like, well, I don't feel really good. I said, I don't care. We gotta get, we're running late. We're supposed to be there. And he walks to the bathroom. And he's walking down this narrow hallway of the bathroom. And he goes, hey, Gary. Boom. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and throws up all over the middle of the hallway, trapping like 30 kids in the two bathrooms. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was a disaster from the start. And, and, you know, you think about, like, pulling up a place, a restaurant on, an, on a phone and an app and getting there and, and arriving and finding out it's moved is probably not that big of a deal. But with everything else that went on along the way, it was monumental. I mean, it was a comedy of errors. And like I said, Murphy has nothing on that trip. I, I wonder like how many times in, in your life there have been these, these times where it felt like you arrived. You, you were at the place you were heading that you knew you were supposed to be at. And you arrive, you get there only to find out that it seems like the destination has moved. It's not really there. Because we, we just knew like if we had kids, the marriage would get better. And then we get the kids, and we put them in the mix, and it it doesn't make things better. It actually makes them worse. 
And we knew that this job would be the answer. And if we got that promotion or that raise, then everything would work out and it would be okay. And we get there just to find out that as we're getting there, it seems like the destination has moved. And one of the things is you listen to Israel's story through the Old Testament and even the New Testament, the retelling of it. You, You see Israel's unfaithfulness and you see God's faithfulness. And I think it's interesting, like, as you think about your life, when you arrive in those places where it feels like the destination has just moved, you you knew this was the place you were heading, and you got there, and it seems like the destination moved. The the thing we do in those moments, it seems like we question God's faithfulness. I wonder how often we actually stop and consider our unfaithfulness, right? Right? Things didn't go the way we thought they would go, and we say, well, God, God, where were you? What what are you doing? Why didn't you show up in the way that that it's obvious that you should have? But we don't stop and say, God, I've I've been unfaithful. And, And so many times I think it's our unfaithfulness that leads us to these places that makes it so difficult for us to see God. And we we question in the moment, not our unfaithfulness, we question God's. And and what's amazing through Scripture, it seems the two are never really connected. In in that God's faithfulness to us is not dependent on our faithfulness to him. I mean, it starts out saying that, and he says to Noah, like, here's this covenant, I'm going to keep my covenant if you'll be blameless and walk before me. But you see time and time again how people are not faithful, are not obedient, and yet still God is faithful to the promises that he's made. And if you're just joining us, we're in the middle of this series called Uncommon. We're working through the book of Romans backwards because we wanted to kind of look at the the pastoral um, church focus for Paul as he's trying to get these groups, these two groups, one in He's going to call the weak, and one he's going to call the strong. And we know that because we've read ahead, and we've looked through chapters 12 through 16 at this point. And so we're coming to this point in chapters 9 through 11 where he's really diving into these very two distinct groups. Because you have these Jewish synagogue believers who are very Torah observant, who've been expelled from the city of Rome, and they're coming back in, and they're finding the church as that they founded and that they started to look very different than the church when they left. Because they've been gone for five years, and you have these Gentile Christians who are coming in and saying, well, we don't really need this Torah stuff to follow Jesus. We have this freedom in Christ, and we're we're one, and we're supposed to be able to to follow Jesus. And these Torah-observant Jews are coming back in and saying, hey, this is not the way that we left things. This is not how it's always been. And if you want to be a follower of Jesus, if you really want to follow Jesus, you need to make things like they were. And there's this this division in this church. There's this conflict that happens because the things don't look like they did when they left. And both groups feel this sense of power and privilege. You have the group that he's going to call the weak, these Jewish synagoguing, um, Torah-observant Jews who are saying, we have this power and privilege because we're God's people. And we've been, from the beginning, God's chosen ones. 
And then you have these Romans who are coming out of places of power and prestige and saying, no, we're, we're God's elect now. We're part of this family. And we have power and we have esteem. And, and what Paul is trying to do for this church, he's trying to deconstruct power and privilege and replace it with peace. That he's trying to give the church a way forward, not as two distinct groups, but now as one distinct group who's set apart, and who's different. And so last week we talked about this Christ-like pattern that has to be formed in our lives. And if that Christ-like pattern is not formed, then the church, as Paul envisioned it, is this unified body is not a possibility. And so he gives us this picture of this Christ-like pattern that's supposed to be represented in our life. And what we said last week, the only way to reproduce the product is to repeat the pattern. There is this Christ-like pattern, and until each and every single one of us start taking on that pattern in our life, and we start looking more and more and more like Christ, that unity is not a possibility. That we're not just unified because we come together and we go to the same. We're unified because of Jesus and because of what he has done. And I think in this, you see this incredibly intense passion for Paul. That the church is the focus. That, that Romans, it's not just about let's be saved, but it's that we're set apart, we're saved for a purpose. So that this church could be this beautiful, unified body representing Jesus. And so in chapters 9 through 11, he, he's talking to these very distinct groups. And the very first thing he does is he turns to this group that later he's going to call the weak these Torah-observant Jewish Christians. And he's going to, to speak directly to them. And he's going to say a few things, starting in, in chapter 9, verse 1 through 5. He's going to talk about this redemptive privilege, that you are a privileged people because of who you are. You are chosen. But then he's going to make this shift in 9, 6 through, 9, 6 through 10, 4, and he's going to talk about election, and he's going to make a really important shift where it's not just Israel in the flesh, but Israel as Messiah's people, a people who belongs to Jesus as Messiah. And then 10, 5 through 3, he's going to talk about the covenant renewal, this covenant that began way back with a guy named Abraham, that this people would be a blessing to the whole world. And then he's going to go 13 through 21 and talk about how that covenant and how what God is doing in his life is going to lead them out on mission. That he's going to give them good news, and this good news has to be proclaimed to this world. And then chapters 11 through 1 through 10, he's going to talk about this remnant that remains. This group that still remains who Paul is a part of. And in this little section, these, these, this two and a half chapters, you see this sincere pastoral concern that Paul has for this church. That this church would be cared for and would be this unified, beautiful body that represents Jesus. And he does it with 21 questions where he just asks questions and answers them. And he asks questions and answers them over and over, ultimately leading to this idea that this is not just Israel, flesh and blood Israel as it's always been. But this is a new Israel. Messiah's people Israel. And he does this 
talking to the weak as the strong, these Gentile believers are here listening in. And I think he does it so intentionally because he wants them to understand Israel's story that they're actually becoming a part of. That they weren't a part of, but they're actually being grafted in. He's going to say, they're going to be joining and become a part. So they need to know the story because they need to see the hope and the promise of Israel. They, they need to see the hope and the promise. They need to also see the unfaithfulness of Israel and the faithfulness of God. And that the Israel, this new Israel, has this purpose and mission. And so in chapter 11, we're going to pick up there, chapter 11, verse 11, he says... I, again, I asked, did they stumble so, far, so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation, talking about the Israelites, if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Their disobedience has put them in this place where they're, they're disconnected, they're separated from God. But when they're brought back in, it's going to look like resurrection. It's going to look like new life. It's going to look like life from the dead. See, if part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And some of the branches, if some of the branches are broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in, among the others, and now share the nourishing sap from the olive root. Do not consider yourself to be superior to the other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Have you ever heard about the grafting process of a tree? Like, it's possible to have an apple tree that produces Fuji apples, and you can somehow graft a branch onto it that at the same time will also produce pink lady apples. Is that, is that not crazy? And I was listening to a, to a gardener talk about this process. And so you have this beautiful, healthy tree that's growing up. And what you do is you go in and you cut off a healthy branch from the tree. And you go and you take another branch from another tree. As long as it's in the same family and you can graft it on. And they do it by, by taking the root stock. It's what it's called on the, the tree that's stable and planted and you slice the end of it, basically like in two. And you take this new branch that's going to be grafted on, and you make a wedge from it. And you insert the wedged in, it's called the sihon, into the rootstock end. And you tape it up so that it can heal. And over time, it will grow together and become this new branch that looks just like it's a part of the original tree. 
and what's, what's amazing is that tree, that branch that's now grafted on, begins to receive nutrients, not from the tree that it began with, but with this new tree that's going to give it life. And as I was listening to this gardener talk about this, this process, something occurred to me. To be grafted into a new tree, you must first be cut away from that which you were previously connected to. Right? To, to be grafted into a new tree, someone has to go to another tree and cut it away and bring it to a new tree and graft it in so that it can become part of this new tree. And you think about it from a, a true from a tree perspective, like you're cutting it away from its life source and you're transplanting it and giving it a new life source. You, you think about that in our life and how that translates to every day for us. Because what, what Christ has called you to is to be cut away from what you used to know and what you used to find life in and what used to be the source of life and the source of new, what, what kept you going, to be cut away from it completely and grafted onto this new tree that will now become the source of life for you. That, that's his message to these Gentiles. It, it's not that you're privileged and powerful. It's that you were weak and powerless and we cut you away from what was dying and what was decaying and we transplanted you, and we gave you new life in this new tree. And so you cannot boast in yourself. Gentiles, you cannot boast in what you have done. Israel, you cannot boast in what you have done. Paul, more than anything else, is trying through the entire book to put everyone who is reading and hearing this letter on equal common ground. saying you are all the same. You've all messed it up. God had this beautiful plan for creation that his goodness would flourish and give life to everyone, and you have taken it and taken it in a direction it was never intended to go. You know, we don't like to talk about sin, but if you talk about sin in that terms, you have taken God's good creation, and you have taken it in places every single person in this place can say, God, I sin. I am a sinner. And Paul wants everyone on equal common ground because to be on equal common ground means everyone can come gather around this common table. That, that you're going to have a new life source and it's not going to be what you've done. It's not going to be your power. It's not going to be your prestige. It's not going to be your privilege. It's going to be Jesus Christ crucified. And it's not easy to cut yourself off from what you were originally connected to. Like there is some hurt and fear that goes with that. Because there was some security there. And there was some promise there. But he wants them to see that they are, are without hope where they were originally connected. And the only way to find hope is to be connected to this new 
tree. And he makes this major shift where this new tree is not just flesh and blood Israel, but it's now Messiah people Israel. The, the people that belong to Messiah, those who are in Christ, those who belong to Christ, who, who have obeyed him and who are following him, who have been baptized into his name and find life in him. These people are Messiah people. And so he goes on in verse 25. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. <clears throat> and in this way, all Israel will be saved. And when he says all Israel will be saved, he's referring to this new Israel, this Messiah's people, Israel. Those who belong to her in Christ, all will be saved. And he quotes from Isaiah, and he says, The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And then he goes on to say this, listen, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. He's talking about the, the Jewish synagogue Torah observant Christians. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. That, that what God says about them cannot be taken back. It will not change. Is that not good news? That what God says about you, that you are his child, that you are loved, that you are forgiven, will not change. It is irrevocable. And that word irrevocable has just captivated my mind this last week. That what God says about you, his gifts, his promise, is irrevocable. And he goes on in verse 32. Skip down for me, Dustin. For God has bound everyone, it says everyone, over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all of them. He's given them over to disobedience so that, given everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. He's given over to, to disobedience. They, they've taken God's good gifts. They've gone in directions it was never intended. And God has given them over to disobedience so that his mercy could be extended to all of them, that all of Israel might be saved. This new Messiah's people, both those native branches and the ones that are grafted in are now part of, of Israel, and all the branches receive life from King Jesus. When we look at our life, how often do we look and say, I am unfaithful? When instead we look and we say, God, where, where are you? 
God, why haven't you shown up? You know, one of the things that we've talked about um, in recent weeks is that your sin does not just affect you. Because there's a lot of times we end up looking around and saying, God, why am I here? And it's because of us. Like, we've messed things up. But there's another side of the problem where it's someone else around us has messed things up. It it was the spouse who was unfaithful. It was the job that ended. And and while we we have a part, there's, there's a bigger part that other people play. Because what we do affects everyone else around us. And when we find ourselves in those really difficult places, our tendency is to say, God, where, where, why aren't you showing up? Why aren't you doing what I thought you would do? Why, why didn't the kids bring happiness? Or why didn't this job fix things? Why didn't this new relationship bring the hope and the life that I thought it would? And, and we ask God to show up and, and bring us out. But, but here's what I, I know. is God will take you to places you have never intended to go in order to produce in you what you're incapable of producing on your own. The Bible calls that grace. God will take you to places you never intended to go in order to produce in you what you were incapable of producing on your own. And sometimes you are led there because you have messed up and God is trying to lead you out of it. And other times you find yourself in those desert places because someone else around you has caused it to happen to you. And and let's just be honest, there are times when it just happens. And it's no one's fault. It's just part of being in a broken world. And I think we find ourselves in those places and our tendency is to say, God, why haven't you shown up in the way that I thought you should? I thought you would. And maybe God has you there for a purpose. One of my favorite verses is in the book of Hosea. And if you don't know anything about the book of Hosea, it's about a prophet who God tells you're going to go and marry a prostitute because Israel has basically um, gone out and become a prostitute to me, gone after all these other gods. And I want this to be this representation But as he's talking about Israel, here's what the prophet Hosea says in in chapter 2. Therefore, I'm now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert so that I can speak tenderly to her. Like so many times I think we think of the desert as a place of punishment. But what Hosea says is no, the desert wasn't a place of punishment. It was the place that Israel could hear God speak tenderly to her. That Israel could know that she is still loved and that she still has a purpose and a place. And I wonder how often those desert places we find ourselves in are put there for the purpose of that is the place we can hear God most clearly because we're not distracted by all the other noise. I'm going to allure her. 
going to lead her into the desert. Sometimes I think we, we arrive and we realize, well, the destination has changed. It's not where I thought it was. Let me just ask, has there been a time in your life when you felt like God was unfaithful? But let, looking back, you see God's faithfulness all over your story. Where, where you were asking the question in the moment, God, where are you? Why aren't you showing up? And now you look back and you see God was preparing you for something else. That God was producing something within you that would never be possible if you hadn't gone through the storm. If you hadn't gone through the darkness. If you hadn't walked through the desert. And maybe we look back from the other side and we can simply say like Hosea, God was leading me, alluring me into the desert so he could speak tenderly. A few weeks ago, I had made some brownies at home. I think it was a Sunday afternoon, and Cammie was asleep on the couch, so she was supposed to be watching Kaylee. Um, and Kaylee came up to me with these little puppy dog eyes and goes, can I have the, the brownie bowl to lick the batter out? And like a good dad, I said, yes, you can. And so I sent her back into the, the living room, and she sits down on the couch, and she's got this brownie bowl, and she's eating the brownie batter. And, and everything's going fine. And I walk through the living room. I don't really pay attention to her. Um, go get something out of my room. I come back through. And as I walk back through, I catch a glimpse out of the corner of my eye of Kaylee sitting on the couch. And she's got this little pink coat on, and she has brownie batter everywhere. Like everywhere, all over the coat, all over her face, just covered in it. And I get so furious, like, what are you thinking? What, what are you doing? And like a, a minute or two after just talking to a four-year-old and asking her what like she was logically thinking and why she did this, um, which works really well, by the way, if you're a parent. Ask your four-year-old what they were thinking when they did this. I, I realized like in a few minutes, like this is not going to be a big deal. I'm going to really wish I had a picture. And so I pulled out my camera and I took this picture. And I said, Kaylee, what were you thinking? I wonder, like, if, are, there, are there times when God looks at us like this? Like, I gave you this good creation. And you took it in this direction it was never intended to go. And you completely made a mess of things. What were you thinking? And I wonder if like, I don't know, I'm four, I'm 40, I'm 80. I, I, don't, I don't know what I was doing I don't know what I was thinking. I think what Paul wants these people to know, not, not just here, but here. Like you are all 
in the same place. Like you, like every one of you, like, and, and so we got to stop saying, well, those people out there, or that group, or they keep messing things up. Paul would say, no, it's all of us. We're all on common ground. We're all a part of the problem. But yet we're all welcomed to the table. We all have this place. And he says a little bit earlier as he's talking to these these Jewish synagogue believers, and we'll finish with this. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And as Scripture says, anyone who believes will never be put to shame. Anyone who believes will never be put to shame. And like there, there's that side of all of us who's like, you know, like, like Kaylee, like, I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know why I did this. But he says, you'll never be put to shame. And and here's a beautiful definition of the word shame. It's the fear of disconnection. In, In other words, is there something about me that if everyone knew it would make me unworthy of connection? Is is there something about me that if everyone knew it would make me unworthy of connection. I think all of us come with that sense of shame. And God says, no, there is nothing. There is nothing that you have done or could do that will make you unworthy of connection with me. And I can prove it by showing you that I'm going to give my son as the greatest gift the world could possibly know to show you that you're not unworthy. And we say, yeah. I, I mess things up and God says, come on. Have you fallen too far? Not at all. Come to Jesus. That is the beautiful invitation. Come, confess, believe, and enter those waters and come through those waters into new life saying, Jesus is Lord and I submit everything to Him. And there's this new Israel. This new very uncommon family. Father, today, we pray in this place that your spirit would fill us, that it would change us, and that it would leave us different than when we came in. And Father, may it help us to grow in unity with one another. Because Father, we know our hope is in Jesus, and your promise and your gift is irrevocable, and there is nothing that can change that. May we have confidence in you, and may that bring this world peace, knowing that Jesus has died and risen from the dead, and the hope of the world is found in him. We pray this in his name.